name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through verse 11 this morning. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let, uh, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, fall fresh on us this morning. Take the word of God and just, uh, Lord, by your spirit, Holy Spirit, we ask you to convict us. We ask you to encourage us. We ask you to change us. Lord, we don't want to leave this morning as we came in. We want to leave with a a lighter step of encouragement. We want to leave, Lord, with a, a greater step of conviction and desire to please you. So we just ask that you would take Peter's words and you would just rivet them to our heart. You break us. Lord, we, uh, you know, as we've learned this new song recently, Father, we pray that you'd open up the heavens and that the Spirit of God would fall fresh on us this morning. That's our prayer. It's, our, it's the cry of our heart, God. So would you do that uh, here among us today? And I pray this uh, so that Jesus would receive all the glory and the honor and the praise forever and ever. Amen. I'm old now, but I can remember my college days. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you can remember your college days, if you went to college, but I can remember them. And I can remember one specific thing about them. I can remember a lot about them. But I can remember one specific thing about them is that I remember how I felt in the spring as we were coming to the end uh, of the semester, in spring sem- or the end of spring semester, I should say. And uh, papers were due, exams were coming up, and you lived under a quite a bit of pressure in those days. But even as you were living in that pressure, of, of spring, the end of spring session, Lord, you, you were you were also there with this uh, this this thought that something new, something great is about to begin. There was all the pressure of the exams and, and finishing up, writing your papers. You had to have your papers in and all of that. But just beyond that was this new great thing that was coming. It was summer break, or it was a new job, or it was uh, graduation, but whatever it was, it was no more tests and no more exams and no more papers to write. And, and so as the end drew near of spring session, you, you, were, you lived in, in light of that end, but listen, you lived in light of the end because of the new thing that was coming. I mean, it wasn't just that that was going to end, it was that something new was about to happen. Now, in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4 of of Peter's first letter that we find here in in the New Testament, we find these verses sandwiched between two separate considerations on, uh, on suffering. 
Now, you'll remember from a few weeks ago, we were, we were in, in Peter. Peter talks an awful lot about the suffering of, uh, of believers. And he talked about how Jesus suffered for righteousness' sake. And he said that we would suffer for righteousness' sake. And just as God delivered Peter and God delivered Noah, at least this was my understanding of those verses, in the same way, God is going to deliver us uh, from our suffering in the days to come. Now, because these verses 7 through 11 are sandwiched between two considerations about suffering, that has led some commentators to believe that this is a later insertion, that it wasn't actually something that Peter wrote, but somebody inserted it there in, in this place. I'm of the opinion that that is not true, that this is not an insertion by someone else, but this is Peter writing. And as Peter is writing, he is... Um, um, he's just writing what comes to mind, and he writes down these verses 7 through 11. In verse 7, it says, uh, it begins with, the end of all things is at hand. What did Peter mean by that? I mean, that's an important question, because really, it's going to be the, the springboard from what he's going to tell us this morning. Some have suggested that Peter meant the end of life is near for some of them, that they were, they were going to be martyrs. In other words, it's sort of like this. The end of all things is near for many of you, because your life is about to end in martyrdom. Remember, his subject is suffering, and so some have suggested that's what Peter meant. Uh, others have said, maybe he means, remember, Peter was there when Jesus said, in just a short amount of time, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, the temple is going to be destroyed, and not one stone is going to be left on another. And some people have suggested that maybe Peter is alluding to the end of, of Jerusalem and the end of, uh, of the temple. And still others have said he means the end of all things in this earthly kingdom as we know them now, and the new order is about to be inaugurated. The end of all things as we know them is at hand, and, uh, and this new kingdom where Jesus is Lord and he reigns over all the earth, all that's about to be inaugurated. Maybe that's what he meant. Now, my personal opinion is it could be any or all three of those things that Peter means. You know, our lives are near their end at any moment, even if we're not being persecuted. Now, listen, at the best you have 80 to 100 years, and I know for those of you that are 15 and 20, I mean, 80 to 100 sounds like a long time, but I want to tell you, for someone who's, who's two-thirds of the way there, man, I mean, it just goes by like this, right? It is not, isn't that right, Earl? Yeah, it just goes by quick. So, you know, really, the end of all things is near for every one of us uh, who's ever lived. I mean, even if we're at the beginning of it, the end of all things is near. Could have meant that. He could have meant the end of Judaism and the first uh, and the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. He could have meant that. Um, but I, but I really think he could also mean that last thing. And probably, I guess if I had to lean to one of them, I think he's, he's really talking about the end of the earthly order as we know it now and the inauguration of, of God's new kingdom that's just around the corner where Jesus reigns uh, on the earth. In fact, listen to this, and this is true, that regardless of when it happens, Jesus is continually encouraging us to live in the expectancy that any moment his kingdom is going to be realized and Jesus is going to return. Listen, listen to Paul to the Roman church. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. To the Philippian church, Paul said this, the Lord is at hand. James said, the, Lord is, the Lord's coming is near. And then John in his revelation says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, how soon is soon? You know, C.S. Lewis in, uh, in his 
Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he has a, a, an exchange, a conversation between Aslan, who is the lion who represents Jesus, and Lucy. And he says to Lucy at the end, he says, do not look so sad, we'll, we shall soon meet again. And, uh, and Lucy says, please, Aslan, what do you call soon? And Aslan says, I call all time soon, and instantly he vanishes. God does seem to refer to all time as, as soon. And, you know, I thought about that this week. I mean, I have the advantage over you guys. I know what I'm going to be speaking on, and so I spend a lot of time thinking on it. And, uh, and I thought, well, maybe that's because God's outside the construct of time. When we think of time, time has a beginning, time has an end. You know, all, all specific time has that. But, but God... Even though, you know, the whole construct of time, I mean, time is passing as it relates to God and, and our planet and, our, and His creation, but God doesn't have a beginning. There's no beginning to God. So, there, so He's somehow outside of this construct of time. And, and He doesn't end either. God in His person does not end. And so He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. So He's outside of time in some way. Maybe that's why He seems to refer to all time as, as, being, as being close. And so when Peter says the end of all things is near, literally what the, what the word there is talking about is that the end of all things is approaching. It's getting closer. Now, I don't know that I actually remember this, uh, you know, but I know it's true nonetheless because, because we all know it's true if you're a parent. You're traveling somewhere with your kid and they're going to, and it's a long way, and they're going to ask you, are we, are we there yet? And like I said, I don't remember if I specifically remember this, but we traveled to Alabama for most of my kids' growing up years, and it was 13 hours, and, uh, and they would ask along the way, are we, are we there yet? And you know what you answer. You answer something like this. Nope, but we're closer and it won't be long now, right? No, we're not there, but we're closer and it won't be long now. And I tell you what, folks, that's, that's just as true when we were in Dendron as it was when we were in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, maybe just about an hour out, right? I mean, it's true. Nope, we're not there. We're on the way, we're, but closer, we're closer, and it won't be long now. And it really won't be long uh, as far as those considerations goes. Every mile, I'm, we're one mile closer to Grandma and Granddaddy's house, okay? So we can say the same thing about our lives and about the return of Jesus and our resurrection. Nope, we're not there yet. And we are closer today than we were yesterday, and we are closer today than we were 60 years ago or 80 years ago. We are closer, and, uh, but, and, and, it's, and, it's, and we're almost there. It's just ahead of us, just ahead of us. In, uh, in Psalm 90, God says this, and uh, he says, A thousand years in your sight, or this is the psalmist speaking about God, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a night shift. That's Psalm verse 90, verse 4. Since God doesn't reckon time the way we do, listen everyone, Jesus has been gone a day. Or, if you want a different analogy, Jesus has been gone a night shift and a day shift. That's not very long, is it? from a night shift and a day shift, from God's perspective, Jesus, the return of Jesus is only tarried a night shift and a day shift. Or from God's perspective, just one day. He doesn't reckon time the way he do, so it really hasn't been long. So what if it's five days? What if Jesus doesn't come back for two weeks from God's perspective? That's a long time out from our perspective on, on that time evaluation. Y'all following what I'm trying to say? 
So, so God tells us, though, from your perspective, though, you know, you know, live in this consideration that the return of Jesus is nigh, and we're living in, in the last days. I don't, I don't know when Jesus will come back, but his return will change the world and bring about the end of things as we know them, and they're going to inaugurate something new and something wonderful. All things will be made new. Everything is going to be renewed. The destruction of all evil and sin and wrong will be accomplished. And I really want you to, I want that to sink in for you. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 says that all things will be brought under Christ and there won't be any more rebellion to God. There won't be any more sin. There won't be any more death. No more digging of any graves. Everything will be brought into subjection to Jesus, everything. And here's another thought that the Bible teaches, the imminent return of Jesus. At any moment, the dead in Christ can rise. At any moment, uh, the skies can unfold and Jesus can step back into our experience of time, if you would, and he can be here and he'll always be with us from that point on. So that's a long introduction to say this. If you believe that too, how should you live? If you believe that, what I've just said, that the return of Jesus is imminent and the return of Jesus, that the end of the order as we know it is nigh and, and the return of Jesus inaugurates all this wonderful world, how should you live now? Because that's what Peter is going to say. The key word in verse 7, if you have your text, look at it. It's that word that we see quite often that writers of the New Testament use. It's the word, therefore. And therefore is always a conclusion, an inference, a deduction, an application. Remember from a few weeks ago, it's a resolution. This is what you should be resolved to do in light of this. Because the end is near. And, and, and again, I, I, the emphasis, I think anyway, and you just, you, you tell me what you think, not right now, but later, um, <laughs> the end of all things, it's not the end of all things that's the cool thing, it's the end of all things brings about the new thing, the good thing, right? In light of the fact that this is about to pass and this is coming, this is how you ought to live, he says. And he's going to give us, if you would, four challenges. That And again, why these four things? There's so many things that Peter could have said. But these are the four things that he tells those readers and he's telling us this morning. In light of the end of all things and the beginning of what's coming, this is how you ought to live. These are four things you, that four challenges I'm, I'm putting down before you and how you ought to be. So let's look at them. Here's the first one. Keep your mind engaged so that you'll pray. Verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Now the idea here in those, Greek in those Greek words is that we're to be thinking correctly, thinking straightly, if you would, not, being, not having our minds clouded with alcohol or hazy thinking. We're to have this sober-minded, this clear, alert sort of way of thinking. Now, as soon as I read that, in those of you that have been here with us for the whole study, it takes us right back to chapter 1, verse 13. Remember this? Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, same words, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So back at the beginning, here's what Peter says to us. He says, man, keep your mind alert 
so that you can be focused on the return of Jesus. Here he adds to that. He says, be clear-minded, unclouded in your thinking so that, for the purpose of prayer, so that you might pray. Be alert. We need to pray. If I had to distill this first challenge down, it would be pray. It would be pray. As you see the end drawing near and the beginning about to unfold, be a prayer person. And to, and to pray, you've got to be a person who has an alert and clear mind. Now, you know, I'll tell you something that's happened to me since, since the beginning of 1 Peter that, that, that's been incorporated in. Actually, I don't know that it happened with, with 1 Peter chapter 1. But it, it just became, I mean, I saw it with 1 Peter chapter 1. And then is that I have found that the way to keep my mind alert and clear, in part, has been to pray about the new thing that's coming. And so if you're involved with me in praying, whether it's uh, Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning or Sunday morning, if you're part of any group that I pray with, then you know that I pray this all the time. I pray about the new thing that's coming. I pray with gratefulness, and I pray with expectancy, and I pray, I just pray asking God, bring the new thing that you said you're going to bring, bring it on. And you know what I have found? I have found about focusing in my prayers, focusing in my prayers on the new thing has kept my mind alert. Now follow this. He says, keep your mind alert for prayer. And as I was going over this this morning, I realized whether, whether on purpose or, or just by accident, I'm living in this spiral, this upward spiral. So as I pray about the second coming of Jesus, it makes me alert. And as I'm alert, it makes me pray. And as I pray, it makes me focus on this. I mean, it's just an upward spiral. And I think either way, it'd be, the, it'd be a backward spiral if I stop thinking about the new thing that God's doing or if I stop praying. But, but here's the challenge. As you see the day coming, when this is coming to an end and the new is coming, Peter says, man, keep your mind clear and alert and do so so that you might pray. You might pray the church, uh, pray the truth. Now, um, I, I think that's his point. As the end draws near, pray, pray. Now, make, make prayer a priority. Start praying early in the morning and, and just pray throughout your day, focusing on truth. Um, and why is that so important? Because, you know, we live in a day, I mean, isn't this a day of turmoil? I mean, just for us as Americans, maybe around the world, you've got on the one hand, you've got the pandemic, you've got everybody trying to relate to it, we've got the disinformation, you know, what's true, we have information coming at it at a 180 different degree, right? So what are those, which of those is true, or is it somewhere in the middle, or how do I live through it? So you've got all of that, and then you've got all the other uh, social people all around us, and then we just got the busyness of life. Right? And so you can become so, it's such a whirlwind of life. You know what happens? We don't pray because we're just so worried and so busy. And I think Peter's trying to say in the midst of all of this, you've got to pray. You've got to, you've got to stop, slow down, and, and just talk with God about all of this. That's what we should do as we see the end drawing near. So I've got to make prayer a priority. And I would suggest to you that when we wake up in the morning, we start right there. Start right there, just focusing on the Lord in prayer. Now, I guess a good question would be, well, how do I keep my mind alert so that my head is in the game, so that I'm praying, right? How do I purposely do this? And, and here's my suggestion to you. 
All right? I hope you follow my train of thought. I, I know it's been kind of not clear, even in my own mind. As I'm, I'm trying to say, Peter says, the end is at hand, the new is coming, therefore pray. I'm trying to say, how do I do that? How do I keep my mind alert for prayer? Here's, here's my suggestion to you. Keep focusing on, on truth, on what's true, on what's right. So here's Proverbs 4. Be careful what you think, because your thinking, your thoughts, run your life. Don't use your mouth to tell lies. Don't even say things that are not true. Keep your eyes focused on what is right and look straight ahead to what is good. Be careful what you do and always do what is right. Don't turn off the road of goodness. Keep away from evil paths. Now, Paul takes that to the Philippian church and he says it like this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, you know what he says next, right? What is it? Think. Think on these things, on such things. To the church at Colossae, Paul put it like this. He said to them, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So it's a matter of focus. Here's how I keep my mind alert to pray. And that is that I focus on truth. I focus on what's good, on what's right, on what God's perspective is. I focus and think on his kingdom. I focus and thinking, think on his work, on the hope of the resurrection. I, I do that. So let me back it down one more layer. How do I do that? How do I keep focused on things that are good? Here it is. And I know it's so simple. And you've been taught this your entire Christian life. It's just choose to read your Bible. And you live in a day, and I know some of you uh, might object to this, and that's fine. You know, it's okay that you object to this. But, you know, we live in a day where you can listen to your Bible. Read your Bible. If you're not going to read it, listen to it. Listen to somebody read it to you. And another thing you can do is you can let people who are telling you what the Bible says, let them speak into your life. You have an opportunity to do that all the time. You know, uh, I have a friend who sends me uh, messages on YouTube from, from a guy that's challenging him, and I found all of them challenging. And, I, and, I, and of course, you all know, I've told you this so many times, most of my, a lot of my free time, my walking time, my driving time, is just listening to things about the Word of God so that my focus is on truth so that I'm alert so that I might pray. So here's what I'd say to you. Man, just make a... To how, and, and why this at the end of all things? See, that's one thing I want you to keep rolling in the back of your mind. Why these four things? If the end of, end of all things is near, and so the beginning of the new is, is near, be alert to pray. Why this? Evidently, in Peter's mind, in God's mind, it's important. It's really important that we keep our minds focused on truth and pray. And, and so I just would just urge you to find ways to feed your mind on what is true. Feed your soul. Feed your inner man and inner woman. Feed it on truth. And you live in such a wonderful day to do that. Such a wonderful... Listen, there were bro brothers and sisters that lived in a day when there were no books. And most everybody was illiterate. And, uh, you know, they had to go on oral tradition. And, uh, hey, you got to do what you got to do. And still there's a lot of oral traditions out or, or oral cultures out there. They don't have writing. They don't have their language in writing. So it's all oral. But you are not them. You, you are in a culture where you have it all written down. You can read it. And you, furthermore, you live in a culture where you can have somebody read it to you. And you can listen to the best Bible teachers in the world with the click of a button on your phone. Amazing. And yet what do we do? We don't do any of that necessarily because we just, I don't know what we do. We listen to country music. And again, I'm not slamming country music. 
I, I, like, I like some country music. I don't listen to it nearly as much as I used to. Uh, and you've got the best praise music to listen to. That's wonderful, too. But I still think it'd be better to use some of that time anyway to feed your mind on, on, not that praise isn't feeding your mind on truth, but feed your mind on truth. And if I can just be, you know, just, you know, now some of you are going to object. You're going, foul, foul, time out. Can I use this time to say, come and pray with us on Sunday morning? Eight o'clock, one hour, come pray with us. Here's number two challenge from Peter. In light of the end of all things and the beginning of God's new, love constantly so you can forgive continually. Verse 8, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. And once again, Peter's repeating himself from chapter 1. Remember this, verse 22? Show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart. Love one another constantly. Here's the verse from chapter 4. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Here's the second challenge. Constantly love one another. Maintain constant love for one another. And, and, and here Peter tells us why. Why should you do that? You answer me. Why should we maintain constant love according to that verse? So that we can forgive, cover a multitude of sins. Again, C.S. Lewis in his book on four loves. This is, and I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis. I've quoted this to you before. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must keep your heart, you must give your heart, excuse me, to no one. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe. Uh, in a casket of your own selfishness, and there it will not be broken, and it will become unbreakable, unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying to love, you have to open yourself up to the possibility of being hurt. And if you don't want to get hurt, then you're not willing to love. And here Peter says, above all, maintain a constant love, because a constant love covers a bunch of multi, a multitude, a bunch of sins. Every time someone wrongs me, I have two choices. Here they are. I have two choices. I can look at it in the eye, and I can forgive it, and I can cover it, and I can move on, or I can hold that person in unforgiveness, and I can hold that person in unforgiveness so that hatred uh, is welling up and bitterness wells up in my heart. I can stir up all kinds of dissensions and hurts against that person. Okay? Those are my two choices. And here Peter is saying, love constantly because love is willing to forgive all kinds of sins against us. It covers sins. Now think about that. It covers sins. Here's what that means. Love refuses to wash its dirty laundry in public. You get it? It covers sins. The opposite of covering them is dealing with it out in front of everybody. Love handles it privately. It goes out of its way to veil sin, to treat it discreetly. It is exactly the opposite of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness seeks to make sure everybody knows how that person hurt me. Love deals with sin publicly only as a last resort. Now, I, I put it in my notes, and I'm going to say it lest you take what I'm saying to an extreme. There are definitely sins that need to be uncovered. Child, sexual child abuse, uh, just child abuse in general, spousal battery. There's all kinds of sins that need to be exposed and not covered over. But here in the text, Peter says, as you see the end drawing near, 
He says, hey, listen, there's a lot of sins that don't need to be exposed. They just simply need to be covered over in love. One of my favorite verses, and one of the verses that I try to take to heart personally, and I would urge you to do it, it says in the Proverbs, it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. I love that verse. It is to your glory to overlook an offense. Here's the truth, everyone. Listen to me. Take this to the bank. Love isn't surprised when close friends fail you. Love isn't surprised when people you love make promises that they don't keep. Love isn't surprised when people write unkind letters to you. Love isn't surprised when you're criticized unfairly or wrongly by someone who's your friend and someone that you love. See, fervent love expects everyone else to fail. And fervent love says when they do fail, I'm going to love them anyway. And I'm going to cover over their sins. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna not, I'm not going to hold them. I'm not going to hold them accountable for that. I'm going to forgive them. Ann and I have been married for 35 years. And this past late summer and fall, I officiated at five, at five weddings. And, uh, and, and, and listen, I had to start at every one of them. Not one of those people, and some of them are here today, I think. Not any one of those people have a clue how difficult marriage may be for them, right? And, and maybe I might even say how, different, how difficult marriage is for... I don't know who amen, but anyway. Uh, I, I don't know that anybody... What am I trying to say here? <laughs> y'all threw me off. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I was going to say, I think all of us have, all, marriage is difficult for all of us, what I was going to say, right? But it's difficult. But, but if you're going to have a marriage that's going to make it, you've got to be willing to cover over a bunch of failures. Amen. And uh, can I say that for our church too? Can I say that for us? If we're going to be a church family that flourishes, then we've got to be a group of people that are willing to cover over a multitude of sins, cover over a bunch of things. You know, it, there's, there should be no such thing as a touchy Christian. Think about this. But there is, right? We've all met people that we've got to walk on eggshells around, etc., right? Should be, should, there should be no such thing as a... This, this text is the opposite of a touchy Christian. Because this says, hey, we're willing to just overlook, uh, bury, cover over wrongs that people, that people do us. R.T. Kendall, in his book, Total Forgiveness, and, and I'm almost finished with this point. The last two are really short, so don't get worried. R.T. Kendall, in his book, Total Forgiveness, which, Eric, this is the book that you recommended to our small group. But it says, uh, he says, if you wait for people to repent, you're going to wait a long time. In other words, how, can I, should I cover over sins for people that don't even, that, that haven't asked for forgiveness or haven't fixed the wrong that they did? R.T. says, you're going to wait a long time if you wait for people to repent. He says very often people, and this is true, isn't it? I mean, it's just true if you just realize it. People that offend you don't even know they've offended you so often, right? They don't even know, right? And if you try to convince them that you offended, you, they offended you, you're just going to make it worse. And I mean, I couldn't help but, you know, we, we watch MeTV a lot. Uh, and MeTV has about five shows of Andy Griffith that they show over and over and over again. And, uh, and one of them is where, where Barney finds a ticket that was unresolved in the filing case. 
And uh, it's between Floyd and some other guy where they punched each other. And we're talking about a decade earlier or more. Nobody remembers it. Barney brings it up and he wants to resolve this ticket that isn't closed. And if you've seen the show, by the end, I mean, people are punching each other all over Mayberry, right? And, uh, and, and Barney, <laughs> Barney doesn't, he makes it worse by trying to fix it, right? And sometimes when we try to fix stuff like that, we just make it worse. Here's what Peter says. As you see the day drawing near, when the new stuff's coming and the old stuff's coming to an end, just be willing to love fervently because love what it does, it overlooks a lot of those wrongs. Here's what R.T. Kendall says. When, you, when you're willing to cover over sin, here's what it looks like. You do not tell anybody what they did to you. You don't try to intimidate the person that hurt you. You do, you do not make them feel guilty for what they did. You let them save face. Here's number five. You accept the matter of total forgiveness. Listen, it's a life sentence. I love that. It's not a matter I've got to do this for a week and then things are going to change. Or I've got to do this for a month. This is a life sentence of forgiveness. And then the final thing he says, you pray that they'll be blessed and let off the hook. And I think that's what, I think that's what Peter's telling us, guys. As you see the day drawing near, love fervently. Because if you do... You're willing to forgive all the little things people do wrong. Number three, be hospitable and do it willingly. Verse nine, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now the word there, hospitality, comes from the root word friend and has the idea of using your home to show friendliness and kindness to others. And here's the challenge again. I've said this several times and we'll say it to you again. Why would Peter include this? Why would Peter say, as we see the end drawing near, use your home for hospitality? Show kindness to other people. Now, in the text, Peter says to one another, and so some people would like to say, well, this is just all about believers showing hospitality to one another. But I would say to you, that flies in the face of everything we know about Eastern culture, and it flies in the face of everything that we see in other places of the Scripture. I don't think Peter's trying to limit this. Hey, show hospitality to other believers, but don't you worry about the stranger and the unbeliever amongst you. Don't you worry about them. You just worry about one another. I, just, I know that's not what Peter meant. As you see the day drawing near, show hospitality. Why is this in here? Well, I think I have an answer. Michael and I attended uh, a Nick Ripkin thing on Monday after that Sunday night for the, uh, at, at Liberty. And it was a nuts and bolts missions thing. It was a nuts and bolts mission thing. And uh, it was actually not nearly as entertaining, not nearly as convicting as the, the night before. But one of the things that Nick said in that talk that morning was that our culture is so different than the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, hospitality is your way of showing love and kindness. And Nick talked about immigrants to our land, Muslims and Hindus and others, and just maybe, maybe a religious people that come from the Netherlands or whatever, but they come to our, our country and they go back home. And you know what they tell everybody when they go back home? They say America, listen, is the most unfriendly place. And you know why? Because Nick said that the statistics are that over 90% of those people are never invited into anybody's home. No one ever invites them to come over for tea. No one ever invites them to come over and share their table. And you say, well, of course not. We don't do that sort of thing here. We don't invite people we don't know into our house. We don't invite people we don't know. Of course we're not going to invite them over. But you're missing the point. In their culture, 
Love and friendliness and kindness is shown that way. And here Peter is saying to us, and you can say, well, our culture doesn't do it, but I, I want to say over and over and over to you, don't rank your American culture over your Christian culture. Make, make your, make the, hey, what if Jesus really means what he says in the Word of God? What if he really means for us to practice hospitality, especially as the day is drawing nigh and the end is coming and the new is coming? What if he really wants us to do that instead of just saying, well, that was for that culture and back there in that day? I'm telling you, folks, I, you know, when, when people go home, because we, the church, we don't invite people over. Far too many of us view our homes as a shelter just for our family. We see our home as our castle. We see our home as the safe place for us. We may crack the door for some very special people that we'll let in, a select group of people. But I'm suggesting to you that as the day draws near, God wants you to get out of your comfort zone, and he wants you to use your home for so much more than just that. This is so countercultural for us as Americans. It shouldn't be countercultural for us as followers of Jesus, but it definitely is countercultural for us as Americans. When was the last time you invited a stranger over to your house for dinner and they didn't leave a stranger, but they left a friend because you invited them over and you got to know them? Now notice the addendum on the end of this. Practice hospitality. And what does the end of that verse say? Without grumbling without grumbling that, that has to do with murmuring it means it means to under your breath you know it's like oh, I'll do it but I don't really want to do it <laughs> do it without grumbling you know and, and why do we grumble even if you're going to be faithful to this and you're, you're going to say today God I want to walk out of here I want to make a difference with my home why do we tend to, why, why do we, if we, even if we do it, a lot of times we might walk out the back doors grumbling. Why? Because this is really hard and we are really selfish. And this is inconvenient. And this isn't what everyone else does. And can I be really honest? This is scary. This is scary, isn't it? Inviting somebody into my house that I don't know, that I just met, or somebody that has a need. I mean, that's really scary. I guess it's better, I've thought about this, and, and I, I, know, I guess it's better to obey grumbling than to not obey at all. But I do want you to see that it's just as important to Jesus, not just, not just how we, not just we do something, but it really is important to him that it, that it somehow spring from our heart. You see that in the text? Like I said, I think it's better to do it grumbling than to not do it at all, whatever God wants us to do. But it's just as important to God that we line our heart up with his will. Kind of like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what I want, but not my will. But Two groupings of gifts. One of them is speaking gifts, and one of them is helping gifts. I think we could lump, I think we could make more categories. But, but the speaking gifts, he said, hey, if you have the speaking gift, and your speaking gift might be encouragement, your speaking gift might be teaching, Whatever your, your gift that God uses you to speak with, you know, he says, make sure you, share, you use your gift with the words of God. Make sure you're sharing the words of God. Hey, listen, I realize, that, I realize that so often we think what we have to say is important, but man, make sure you're just sharing what God says with people. And then, he, then the other gift, the other grouping of gifts is help gifts or helping and serving gifts. And in this category, I think, could have hundreds and hundreds. Literally, I, I personally think it could have lots of 
gifts that God has given to you, abilities that God has given to you, and how you might can help. Some people disagree with this, but just talents that you have, abilities like Butch has with music. I mean, I don't know anywhere it's mentioned that music is a gift that God's given you, but I think it is. And, and some of you may have given it innately from when you were born or whatever, but it's a gift that God's given to individuals that they're to use to help others, right? So whatever your gift is, he says, use it to serve others. And then Peter adds this. He says, whatever your gift is, serve in the power that God supplies. So we get this variety of gifts. They're like the color charts. You know, there's just constant mixes of colors on the color wheel, right? The God's grace is multicolored or many colored. It's not monochrome. There's not one gift for everyone. We're all different. God made us all different. And so we come from different... I can just talk about our background differences, our language, our cultural difference from different nations. But let me just talk about us. Even in our own culture, and we were all different. We've grown up different ways. We had different parents. We grew up in different parts of the country. We were raised under strict parents and permissive parents and loving parents and distant parents. And so all kinds of things have gone in to shape my personality. And God gifts every one of us. And, and it's just, and we're all different. Sort of like light hitting a, a prison, you know, and it divides into all the different colors, right? Well, the grace of God hits my life and the color that comes out is going to be different than Earl's color or Eric's color, right? And so we're all different. And here's what I want to say to you. The church, the church, God's people, the world needs every one of your gifts, every one of your abilities that God has given you. No gift is too small to be used. No gift is insignificant. No person is, is somehow not a part of this whole mix. Now notice this. God gives the gift. God gives the strength. What's needed on our behalf? If you're willing, God gives you the power to do it. God gives you the gifting to do it. What's needed? Just your faithfulness, right? Just your willingness to say, here am I, send me. Remember Isaiah? Back at the beginning, who shall go for us? Here am I, send me, Lord. That's Isaiah the prophet. Here's what God needs from all of you and from me. He's gifted you. He's going to empower you. All he needs is for you to raise your hand and say, uh, okay, I'm willing. Use me, God. I'm, I'm stepping into it. Why at the end of all things? Because, I mean, this is how we'll make the greatest impact around us in the world. By praying and by stepping up and using our gifts and our abilities. And uh, this, this is how God is just going to, to use us. He's going to uh, use our fervent love. Our love, what was the first, the second one there? It was, uh, to, our love is going to make it so we stay together because we're willing to forgive each other and, uh, and being hospitable, opening our homes. I mean, most people in our world, they're not going to get, they're not going to get saved. Listen, they're not going to be born again by, by reading a track. And again, do people get saved by finding a Gideon Bible in the, in the hospital drawer? Absolutely. Do people get saved because somebody left a, a chick track on the toilet urinal and they picked it up and they read it? Yes. But that's not how most people are going to begin to follow Jesus. Most people are going to follow Jesus when you're willing to sit down across your table and share your life. Remember last week's message? How do we marshal the greatest impact around the world? And it was that we care. Remember, Paul says, I wasn't just willing to share with you the message. I was willing to share. You to answer me. What was he willing to share with them? His life. His life. 
And you know how we're going to reach the world and change the world in these last days? It's when we're willing to, to, to set aside fears, bring people into our homes, and let them share our life with us. And we're, we're going to, we're just going to, across the table, let them see Jesus in us. So let me ask you, and these are rhetorical questions, what do you do with the gifts that you've been given? What are you doing to help others along the way now? Is God's church better and stronger because you're in it, because you're using your gifts, whatever it is? In 1980, a statue out in front of the King Catholic, the Christ the King Catholic Church in San Diego was vandalized. So there's a picture. I went out and looked it up and make sure this is a true story. And there's a statue of Jesus standing out in front of the, the Christ the King Catholic Church. And vandals came along with a mall and they busted off Jesus' hands off the statue. So if you go and look at it, there's a Jesus statue with no hands on it. And the congregation decided that they weren't going to fix it. Instead, they were going to put a plaque on the bottom of it. And this is what the plaque read that they put. I have no hands but yours. And I think that was influenced by uh, a poem by St. Teresa of Avila, where she wrote, Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. We are the body of Christ. And as we come to the end of all things, as we know them, and we wait for the inauguration of God's kingdom come to earth from heaven. Jesus taught us to pray, right? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what we're praying for. We're praying for Jesus to come back and inaugurate his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As we wait for that, as, as we draw near to that, here's what Peter says, four things. Keep your mind engaged so that you'll pray. Love constantly so that you can forgive continually. Be hospitable and do it willingly. Use your gifts to serve people. Um, if this is the last day that we have before the return of Jesus, may it be said of Bacon's Castle and of you personally, we did our very best. We did our very best for King Jesus. And I end with the words of Peter at the end of verse 11. To him... And I don't know if that's God or if that's God the Father, God Jesus, whether that's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Let's go with that. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for giving us such specific instructions, such clear and concise instructions in how we are to live as we see the day the end drawing near and the inauguration of all that's to come. Father, help us to, under the pressure of these days, Lord, and I don't know why you chose these four, but may these four things be true of us. And Lord, with excitement, we wait for the return of Jesus. And Lord, we would say today, come Lord Jesus, we long for your return. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Mm-hmm.